Welcome to Micro College. This week on the podcast, we are really excited to have a couple of guests from Canada, um, Philip Mesley and Julia Henderson. Thank you for, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. We're, we're excited to be here. Yeah, definitely our pleasure. Great. Yeah. So um, right at the beginning here, I want to mention that one of the reasons we're speaking with, with, with Philip and Julia is that Philip uh, it will be coming to Thoreau College, to Viroqua here in January and February to offer a, a six-week course um, on, uh, on philosophy and literature um, with the theme of the organic metaphor in politics. So um, if you're listening to this uh, in, in, in late 2023, check this out and uh, consider coming. Um, this is a great way for a deep dive for a, for a shorter period of time here at Thoreau College. Um, of course, that's going to involve some some reading and some discussion, um, some academic writing, as well as uh, hands-on experiences with crafts and a week-long winter expedition here in Wisconsin. So if if reading um, some and discussing some big ideas and some serious texts, living in community and really challenging yourself in the in the, in the elements sounds appealing, this is this is a great opportunity for you. So we're going to talk more about that course, but I just want to get that right up up front. Um, Check out the Thoreau College website. Uh, this is the, our winter program, The Organic Metaphor in, in Politics. So, um, yeah, I think, um, Philip, maybe could you could give us a thumbnail uh, introduction to yourself here so we can uh, get a sense of, of where you're coming from? Sure. Um, my name is Philip. I uh, am very excited to be teaching this, uh, this program at Thoreau uh, coming up soon. Um, how I guess I came to uh, connect with you, Jacob, and, and with Thoreau is that um, Julie and I together are launching a, we call it an institute, uh, that is, is going to be based out of Southern Ontario. Um, it's called the Great Lakes Institute, and in many ways, I think it reflects um, some of the priorities that Thoreau has outlined. Um, but it also reflects some of our priorities and interests and, and things that we think are um, really necessary and valuable uh, today. So um, <clears throat> so together we are uh, the organizers of the Great Lakes Institute, and, and that's sort of my primary thing these days. Um, and that involves organizing study groups, um, offering uh, some workshops and, and hands-on um, programs. And we're leading up to hopefully a semester long uh, summer program next year. Um, yeah, great. But in general, I guess our, our, our main priority is to foster a kind of independent and regionally focused intellectual community. Um, which can hopefully uh, meet some of the needs uh, of our of our current time, as well as provide different kinds of intellectual uh, resources and programming to what's currently offered in the university. Yeah, great. We're, we'll dive into all of that uh, in, in great depth. Um, and also, I'd like to Julia. Could you could you introduce yourself? Absolutely, absolutely. So. 
So I am coming on to the project a little later than Philip. Um, we, though we have been friends for maybe 10 years and share a lot of the same interests. Uh, I myself, am, uh, I have been in academia for maybe 10 years now. I studied predominantly poetry and literature at University of Toronto. And then recently I have just finished up uh, another master's at this tiny little institute called the Institute for Christian Studies. Um, which is a strange little place in Toronto uh, that is founded by a group of reformational philosophers from um, this sort of strange Dutch Calvinist philosophical background, um, of which I am not, but I go to this school because they uh, they are doing a little more of this sort of um, the kind of integration between different uh, different subjects and different different practices that I that I'm really interested in. Um, I study a lot of right now Simone Weil and some um, of the sort of 13th 14th century Christian mystic women um, whose works were sort of doing a lot of this. Um, they were they were interested in what you might call like the contemplative and the meditative and the this this these like similar perhaps, although very differently written to their scholastic counterparts, like uh, the Franciscans and the Cistercians and things. Um, but at the same time, they were very interested in sort of engaging with their communities um, in the form of hospitals and, um, you know, helping helping the sick and caring for the poor. And that sort of dual impulse, the, the, the contemplative work with this, like, um, this social sort of active arm into the world, um, which you see in Simone Weil a lot as well, who I just finished my, my thesis on, that is like very, very inspiring me and kind of inspired my decision to come on in a more, uh, in a more active role in the Great Lakes Institute. So yeah, so, so I, that's, that's me. That's my background. That's why I'm here. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's some fascinating stuff to, to bring into mm. this work for sure. Um, Simone Bay, we had a wonderful um, discussion of uh, of gravity and grace here a year or so ago that was very inspiring to yeah um, to to many of us here. So very very interesting strands. So I want to take a couple of steps back here. Um, if anyone who's listened to the Microcollege podcast knows that we we like to ground our conversations in in people's biographies, especially the biographies of of um, of their 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 young adulthood. Um, so, mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering if uh, if you, each of you would care to reflect for 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 a little bit about your uh, life, where you were when you were you know 18, 19, 20 years old. You know what were you doing? What was shaping your life and your identity and your experience of the world during that time period? What what really stands out in from this from this point in time? Julie, oh, do, you start? Want, do you want to go first, or do you want me to jump in? Me? Okay. Um, well, I suppose the first thing I should say is that both Philip and I grew up in Georgetown, Ontario, which is a um, pretty, it's a relatively small suburban town, no public transit, um, fairly isolated from, uh, from the other nearby cities, a very kind of rural surrounding environment. Um, so we, we grew up there. And for me, I'll, I'll say for me personally, you know the the benefit of being in that kind of environment it's sort of it's sort of mixed there's not a lot of anonymity which is nice because community is sort of um it's almost a given because everyone everyone knows you um but at the same time as as young kids 
as me as a young person interested in in literature and you know being an angsty teen in general uh you can kind of feel a little bit stifled in those spaces and we i found this this local used bookstore nearby uh that's I think for both of us became really like a, a haven that we spent a lot of time in where we started, you know, I started reading these, these texts, mostly literature that kind of just like expanded, um, expanded my world in, in an exponential way. Um, and after that, I moved to Toronto to the big, you know, the big city. Uh, and I feel like, especially between 19 and 22, I was really, really desperate to try and like find a way back into some sense of 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 that that combination of like a community that was intimate that is that is local, but with this uh, desire for uh, engaging with the world in such a way that is sort of this like this this you know global and branching out and historical and for me actually that happened a lot in Toronto and local coffee shops um these sort of like third spaces in the big city that became very like small local communities in and of themselves um and meeting like minds there fellow uh, students and scholars going to different universities in the city where we would sort of collect and we would do communal work. And we also, I worked at this coffee shop. So I would spend the mornings, you know, working, making things for people, you know, giving them coffee, feeding them. And then I would sit on the other side of the counter and I would have people give me coffee and feed me and and read my texts. And, and we would have all these scholarly conversations. So that that is how I got through university that's how I got through um I was I was a little bit older when I went back to university I was maybe it doesn't sound that old but 22 23 when I went back to U of T and I had a hard time connecting in class um and so it was this sort of secondary community that really allowed me to feel at home in the city and and really really like challenged the way that I thought and the, the things I was engaging with and were introducing me to all these new texts and new ideas um so yeah, so so that's 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 where I was located in those years, and it was a very I was very rooted. It was really space based. Um, that 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 kind of small community was really important to me. Um, so I don't know if that quite answers your question, but Perfectly. that's where I was. Yeah, I mean, so much of what we're talking about here has to do with creating this the spaces and those exactly. you know, the communities of, of different forms, right? And so it's 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 great to be reminded that can happen in the city as well. Right. It can. Yep. It can, although it's it's like I feel like COVID happened and and that and some of those spaces, you know, not all of them, um, some still are there, but but certainly things started shifting after 2020. Um, with with you know, justifiably, a lot of businesses needed to find ways to to um survive. And that meant sometimes not always choosing to foster that um that community feel as much. Although luckily the place I used to go is still is still still running, still kicking. So you know. Beautiful. Thank you. What about you, Philip? Um yeah, I appreciate Julia um bringing up our hometown, Georgetown. Um it I think there's definitely something there to do with um the lack of anonymity, um, which is interesting because the way I experienced our hometown, which uh, was in a period of, of pretty rapid transition while we were growing up. And I think at this point, almost 
doesn't even exist anymore in the same way. It's become sort of the suburb of a suburb um, as the city has uh, has slowly sprawled towards it. Um, but I, I recall um, this, this, the, the town as kind of anonymous itself, um, that it was a sort of no place. And when we were growing up, uh, I don't think anybody really bothered to teach us sort of where we were, uh, what were the peculiarities mm -hmm. of, of this place and um, what was what was the right way to, to live there uh, by comparison with living somebody somewhere else. Um, so it was it was just sort of this this large no man's land and I think that that gave it this sense of unreality um, and I think I certainly experienced you know the real tangible world as kind of unreal and part of um, what led me to fall in love with art and literature and philosophy was that it, it took me to I think a much more real place um, but at the same time uh, the these new 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 havens as it were as julia put it um were kind of stigmatized at least in in my uh early days um i was you know based on my upbringing i was encouraged to not you know try to sound too smart not to talk too much about books you know it was pretentious it was um you know uppity or whatever and i should just sort of mind my own business and, and stay in my lane or whatever um so when i when we left and and i i initially moved to halifax and studied at king's and i think unlike a lot of people who are on this podcast i who who entered university and and found something that was cold and that they became disillusioned with um i in fact accidentally found myself in a terrific program <laughs> for which i was not at all uh a, you know, at a place to really appreciate, I think, what I what I had. Um, but I took the foundation year program at King's College in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, and it's an extraordinary program um, that that really gave me this incredible foundation um, in the text that I think influenced so much uh, of each other and, and of the, the world that we still live in. So I'm really, I really appreciate that. Um, but then, then that first year ended that, you know, first year great books program ended and, uh, and first I dropped out and then I came back and so on. Um, but I discovered that, uh, to, to continue in the university and to do well, um, was not about, learning necessarily and it wasn't about loving the text which is something which is the way of relating that i think i i would have uh, naturally fallen into uh but i discovered that it, it was the way to succeed was to be a uh, a scholar like in the in the professional sense of the word um and then i did you know I went ahead and and uh, and adopted the techniques of the scholar and did decently well. Um, but then I graduated and the 
the sort of intellect anti-intellectualism that I had inherited uh, continued to weigh on me. And I felt like, you know, I really needed to, to do something um, practical, something useful um, that it was enough. And I, I had carried this, I think the whole way through working several jobs while pursuing my studies and so on. And I always felt kind of guilty for, for, uh, for reading so much. Um, but so anyway, so I worked for a few years, uh, first for the government. Um, and then as what I view as a, a, a fairly widespread environmental crisis began to, um, become more apparent to me, um, I started shifting my attention to that and I, and I slowly, uh, transitioned my career into environmental activism and, um, completed a master's in environmental studies. Um, but I think that now, um, as we're moving forward, I, I, I've, I've tried to draw as much as possible from the lessons, uh, that I've had, which is not to feel shame for, uh, for bookishness or for a conceptual approach to things, um, but more than anything, to see the ways that uh, there actually is quite a bit of synergy um, between an intellectual approach to certain issues and a, and a practical or a embodied one. Um, and so in that sense, I'm grateful for the experience that I had, um, because I think that by pushing myself into some, uh, some experiences that I wouldn't otherwise have had, uh, I've, I've come to see how these things work together. Um, and so in particular, recently I've been working uh, primarily as a gardener um, and that's been fantastic. And I, and I really see in gardening um, the kind of uh, sort of convergence of, of all the, these different strands of, uh, of human life that are really incredibly bound up in the act of gardening um you know it helps if you know latin so you can know the words so there's like the classics element uh right of, of all the different names of things <laughs> uh, the plants and stuff um but then you also need a kind of intuitive and and really embodied um technique to 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 treat the plants with care but also the right you know um decisiveness to to make the the pruning cuts that are necessary or to uproot the plant that's that's dying and spreading disease or things like that and then at the same time there's an artistry that it's involved you have to have certain design skills um you know to to place flowers in a pot just right or to arrange your your plants in the plot um so i really i really love this craft um that combines for me aesthetics with uh you know a kind of physical personal and bodily relationship with other species and it also involves quite a bit of learning you know learning plant science as well as um, history and, and the culture of different uh, cultural uses of different plants um, so that's kind of where i've arrived now and and this experience of convergence I, uh, convergence I think is guiding quite a bit of what I do now yeah that's very beautifully put um yeah 
I'm thinking you know, you're talking about pruning um, the 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 period of this uh, this winter program um, here at Thoreau will be you know it's not gardening season exactly uh, <laughs> the snow will will probably be on the ground um, but um, one thing that does happen that time of year is pruning so we've got a we have fruit trees and vineyard here and uh, I've always found um, that to be one of the most you know training, you know, great kind of thought provoking and, uh, you know, and also just trainings of certain inner qualities, especially those of decisiveness, but it also sculptural <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and it is something I always, um, whenever I've got a student or person I'm working with who is making, has a hard time making decisions, you have them do some pruning because you, know, <laughs> you got to cut or not cut. There's no midway ground and you got to do it over and over and over again. So I really hear what you're saying about, um, yeah, the, you know, the, the resonances between that type of, you know, the consciousness that's needed to be a gardener and and to work with plants in that way and and, and intellectual kind of, yeah, and, and ideas and books. Beautiful. Yeah. So, great. Okay. So, um, thank you for those, those biographies and, and those, those pictures into your, into your origin stories. Um, I'm wondering if, yeah, now if you could, you know, this, the Great Lakes Institute um, is this emergent uh, uh, organization that, that you're you're working to found there in, in, in Ontario. Um, yeah, can you describe it? What's, what, what is emerging here? And what are the, what is the, what is the origin story of this, 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 uh, of this project? Um, sure. So I, I think the, the way it worked uh, in my mind and in conversations with other people is that we started with a long-term vision and we've since been kind of working our way back and trying to find the steps that will lead us there. Um, and that long-term vision has also changed and been modified over time. Um, and I think a lot of people have been involved in the shape that it currently has. Um, but the way that uh, I see it right now is that ultimately um, the Great Lakes Institute would, it's just a name that we, you know, have given to what would ultimately be a, uh, a series of interconnected um, programs and self-created and organized um, programs basically in the liberal arts and operating out of a farm. Um, so the dream would be to have some land uh, given over to the Great Lakes Institute that could be operated as an organic farm. And for either young people who would prefer to do something, you know, in the vein of what I've mentioned that combines both the kind of intellectual um, uh, cultivation that you would receive in the university and in particular in humanities programs together with uh, some hands-on work um, you know in a way that is typically separated uh, into different institutions would be able to to come to the Great Lakes Institute and, and get some of that cultivation there um, at the same time the 
the institute would be open to more advanced scholars who would want to come, uh, you know, not necessarily needing a groundwork in the humanities or anything, um, but to come do a residency and run some kind of self-directed program and, and using the resources uh, that are available. So whether it's doing a reading group or giving a seminar or simply writing a book uh, and having people look at it uh, or maybe, you know, hosting interviews or, or what have you, um, that would be open to to whatever the uh, the scholar is interested in. Um, but the, 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 the core of it, I think is that it operates out of this farm and everybody who participates, uh, in the intellectual activities is also, um, participating in the work and the, the sale of foods, whether by CSA or some other kind of model that we'll figure out, um, will help support the, the work. And, and I think that you know, many hands make light work. And the idea being that, um, you know, intellectual work in the liberal arts um, doesn't necessarily produce a product. And therefore it, it has to figure out different kinds of arrangements for how to fund itself in a society that's primarily market or uh, oriented. Um, and so one of them has, has been to charge tuition, uh, which is very expensive um or to receive grants on the assumption that you're creating new knowledge or something like that which i, I think is a problematic assumption mm -hmm. um so the the model that we're uh sort of proposing is is simply that you do a certain amount of work uh and that frees up your time and i think that this is possible in a way that historically has not been because we have made uh, certain advances in science, you know, understanding our soil a lot better than farmers did previously, as well as having developed new kinds of tools and, uh, you know, borrowing the term from Ivan Illich, convivial tools, things that um, we can operate without getting into enormous debt, um, but that also make, I mean, like the bicycle is, is one of Illich's um, famous examples. This is a, a very recent invention, um, and it's a vehicle that allows us to get around multiple orders of speed faster than on foot, and yet with no fuel required. Um, so tools like this exist in farming um, and, and have been discussed at length. Um, you know, like there's a, a little uh, market garden out of Quebec that's uh, really been pushing this tool called the broad fork, the grelinette, they call it. Uh, you know, there's like these, these uh, new approaches to food production, um, I think ought to be implemented not so as to, uh, you know, make new kinds of market intrusions but but to lead to the kind of good life that uh historically is, is what human beings have been looking for um at least some of us um so those of us who are interested can give it a shot um mm. 
Yeah, but but I think the the one of the distinctions between the Great Lakes Institute and and some of the other uh, projects that you might have been interviewing is that it's not necessarily a school in the same way. Um, we haven't given it the name of a school or a college um, because I think what's most important here is that we try to recognize that there are some people who uh, who have an intellectual or, or a spiritual vocation um, that isn't quite being met in any other institution unless, mm -hmm. you know, you're becoming a professional in some way, mm -hmm. um, you know, a professional priest or a professional scholar, you know, university professor or something like that, which uh, increasingly, I think, in, in these, uh, you know, mega institutions are unsatisfying i suppose mm. um but paul goodman wrote in a book in the 60s the community of scholars he predicted that um you know as the bulk of administration became so unbearable um what was most likely or, or the question he asked was like is when is it going to be the time for the community of scholars which has always existed um to essentially pack up and move to the wilderness as they have done historically time and time again and uh i i think i i read that and i thought well i guess i guess that's what i'm doing uh, i didn't know that i was but i but i've also met many other people who've expressed a similar sentiment and and so i think that we're all kind of discovering that that the time is ripe um but i think that we also need to acknowledge that it is impossible to do alone yeah. So that's where the farm comes in. Um, and the farm itself has enormous value, I think, also on the kinds of intellectual work that get mm -hmm. done. Um, and this, I think, is something that we'll be talking about in the program um, at Thoreau you know, on the organic metaphor and politics is the extent to which um, so many of the authors of the books that we read, if they were written more than 100 years ago, uh, have had a completely different experience of life and I think would be hard-pressed to understand how modern university professors can can believe that they're reading them properly when when they haven't you know had to walk through fields to get to uh, another person's house or um, when you know they they haven't had the kinds of contact with the earthly world that they did um yeah what i'm saying is that i i think many many uh of the authors of the books that make it onto great books programs and and we could talk about the revision of the canon which i'd, I'd also um like to introduce because I, I have some issues with the idea of great books but regardless many of those authors um have had a much more earthly existence than I think most contemporary university professors. And so act, living uh, with, with your hands in the soil, I think makes you better capable of interpreting those books. Yeah, that's a powerful statement. It really, of course, resonates with with our, you know, our connection with, with Thoreau and the American transcendentalists. I mean, Emerson and Thoreau both emphasize the importance for 
physical experiences, you know, you know, manual labor experiences in nature for our language, right? Our so much of 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 of, of language is is built up out of you know organic metaphors or or, or images that are drawn from from embodied experience, and uh, you know, and I, I love I, certainly one of the things I love about doing the the farm work and the other manual skills that we do with our students here is how often you can say, okay, here. You know, uh, a couple months ago, we were um, being introduced to um, draft oxen by a, a local woman who trains oxen. And, you know, here is an ox bow, right? Here's a yoke, right? And mm-hmm. you know, just think about like, where does that play out in, in, in our language? Um, and, and things that are entirely invisible, if you haven't actually, you know, you haven't haven't in some way engaged with 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 the trades or with the soil or with, yeah. or with the forest in some way. So that's yeah that that really resonates. That our, our our language, our, our thinking is impoverished if we are only you know on paper on a screen, right? Yeah. So so what you're talking about, you know, this this sense of you know the people who have a vocation towards the to the intellectual to the spiritual life, going packing up for the wilderness and and forming a community, right? This has happened before, um, in several places in the world, and so I think things that I see in your your language and in your your writing also invokes the monastic tradition um and and also you know Julia what you were just saying about the 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 medieval mystics and and their you know people who were also doing you know caring for you know medical care and and, and communities um so can you Julia maybe could you talk about that is that what do you bring from your study of the mystics to this work or from that from that era yeah uh, it's a good question I guess so first of all just to like uh, to locate a little bit, I, I would say that primarily I study a group of, of women called the Beguines. I don't know if you've heard of them before. Sure, yeah. um, most notably, Margaret Perrette, who wrote The Mirror of Simple Souls. Um, and then later, sort of a lot of her ideas were picked up by Meister Eckhart, um, who, for the record, also uh, preached a lot to women, to women groups. Um, not to say that it's necessarily like a strict gendered divide. Um, anything I'm about to say, I think some some scholars would certainly disagree with me. But um, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit. I when I first started studying uh, Simone Weil, I was struck by, uh, like many people are, by the sort of uh, tenacity that she had and her um, her 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 extreme sense of obligation and responsibility towards the world, um, sort of mingled with her just incredible ideas and um, incredible uh, grasp of of, uh, the Greeks and tragedies and and philosophy and mathematics. Um, And that in in that one person, you know, these two things were were sort of so so bound together. and yet, you know, you can see in her life, in the biography of her life, this struggle in which, you know, she leaves the university uh, to work in a factory and right. then is injured and then is is devastated because she cannot work. And then she goes uh, to fight in, you know, revolutions as a, as a pacifist. And then and she, her for her, you had the added problem of her health, which was constantly failing her. Um, but you see it in her work and you see it in her text is this this sort of um her her philosophies are are always like uh leaning towards how one can engage actively in the world and her activity in the world is absolutely rooted and grounded in um a a, a sense of well her her philosophy and her and her contemplative work and and her her for her her religion um 
whatever religion we decide that that is for her. Um, so anyways, that is to say that then later I found sort of a, I found uh, a similarity in these, in these Beguine mystic women. And I, and I found, um, I found that for them, at least the, they lived, they lived in these cities, you know, where they cared for um, the sick and started early versions of hospitals. And yet, you know, wrote these texts, um, which were very different from their male counterparts, but yet still were, were circulated around and meant to educate and meant to be creation myths and, 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 and be, um, yeah, really in, inspire the lives of the women um, and, and how they were, how they thought of themselves and how they thought of their responsibilities to their communities. Um, and for me, that that sort of unity between one's one's laborious work and one's thinking life, you may, might say, is so important because, so I, I have lived in Toronto now for 10 years and this is a very, this is a city, I don't get, I don't get much of, I, I don't see much of the, um, of the land well, what I will say is that I've spent the last 10 years working in hospitality and working in restaurants, uh, working, you know, very physically demanding jobs where you're 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 doing service work, you're serving to people. Um, and I do that in the evenings. And then in the mornings, I go to school and I think all day. And then in the evenings, I go and I do this physical work. And my mind is not important unless it's, you know, bringing people things and and getting things and caring for people. And this sort of that you know I have two different communities in my life and I have two different aspects of my life and and that is okay but the idea the desire to sort of bring those two things together and unify them and that we that there are these I'm inspired by these these histories of these women who were doing this together in community um, who were learning together and working together um, and so that that really grounds uh my sort of love and desire for participating in a project like this is even just just the idea that I could I could do those two things in the same place and they, they could speak to each other rather than and speak to each other publicly speak to each other in a way that I could talk about with my community rather than only separately in this community or that community um so yeah that's really that's sort of where it's coming from for me in my personal life and that's where my the the things that I have been studying because like Philip, I I have felt maybe for me, guilt is not the right word because as a woman in philosophy, especially, I, I've always felt like I, I didn't belong in the intellectual space, but I did very much belong in the in the working space, in the in the serving space, you might say, um, in 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 that sort of caretaking role. Um I don't know where I was going with this, but um but to be, yeah, to be able to unify those two things and to feel comfortable. Oh, this is what I was going to say is that I, 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 for a while, for a while in my studies, I tried to just be the intellectual and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to leave behind uh, working hospitality. Oh, the day that I can no longer have a part time job, you know, serving at a restaurant. That was the dream. That was the goal. And lately in the last few years reading these texts, I have come to love that that is an integral part of who I am now. And that it, and that I don't want to, to, to take that part and put it, I don't want to just be in this other space. And so, um, and so actually learning to not be ashamed of that work and, and learn to bring that into my intellectual pursuits. Um, that has been like a big shift for me recently. Um, yeah yeah powerful yeah i think that that my, my sense is that you know 
when I learned about the Great Lakes Institute from Philip and and you know just some of the inspirations and the, and the way this that you were talking about it, you know, it bit for me into um, a sense something that I hear more and more of is is an interest in in these in the monastic kind of traditions yeah. of different parts of the world, um, and and not necessarily from. And, and generally not from a religious perspective, right? These are not people yeah. who are who are you know people may have their own spiritual quests in one way or another, but fundamentally for the structure of life, right? And, and yes. a sense of a sense of community that that's represented there. And there's there's a there's a yearning that is is popping up in surprising places around this around this model, which is you know for for a time it's kind of receded in 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 the in the culture in a way. Um, yes, yes. I think. Yeah, I but think I so necessary now anyways go on philip sorry um i think there's another uh there's another source of of influence uh on this idea of intentional community and i think that julia touched on it a little bit when she discussed how um how masculine dominated uh, the intellectual space tends to be and so on, um, which is that um, I think these, these renewed and re revived um, intellectual communities that, that we're striving to produce, um, you know, not only the two of us, but but many people around the world um, have to look not only at the monastic institution, um, but also in a way at uh, what I think we disparagingly call like the the, the liberal tradition, um, because you know we I, I mentioned earlier that we can't do it alone. Um, but today, doing anything with other people involves doing it uh, with people across difference, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so men and women and, and people of various backgrounds, um, I think, need to be part of, of this conversation for it to stop being so sterile um, and, and for it to really... Uh, to have the life and energy that intellectual conversation needs to have, um, any intellectual activity must be pursued in a space of togetherness. Um, you, you, you cannot think on your own. Uh, as Hannah Arendt put it, when you think on your own, what you're doing is ideology. Um, hmm. And so, when we talk about intentional community, uh, which is a term that I don't tend to use that often, but um, I'm using it now to, to try and put a bit of a spin on it because the intention that we have to put into it uh, is, is precisely the intention to live in a, in a plural uh, community, right? Um, because the trend, I think, overwhelmingly uh, in our time is towards a kind of renewed uh, nativism or, or uh, identitarianism or something like that. Um, and if, if, if that is the trend 
that wins the day, uh, then not only is intellectual life in grave danger, um, but also so is, I, I think, a lot of, of human lives and a lot of material uh, circumstances. Mm. Right. So I, I see uh, these institutions as, as really needing to provide a model um, for how to do the difficult task of intentionally being together, even though we're different. Uh, and, and that's why I, I think I was referring to a little bit with, you know, the, the great books tradition, which, in my opinion, is the product of a myth making, um, of a mythologizing. And, uh, you know, the, the so-called West, which I don't really believe in, I don't believe it's, it even exists, um, is a myth. Uh, and so our new intellectual institutions need to be intentional in the sense that not only do they embody the, the rhythm um, and the humility of monastic traditions, but they also embody the, um, the commitment to plurality of the liberal tradition in our texts, in our, you know, in the people who are part of the organization, um, in our thinking, um, you know, the, the last, I think, great period of, of demystification, demythologization was the late 19th century. And what happened after that was a rebound of extreme proportions towards, um, you know, people doubling down on, on certain kind of grand narratives. So as we are existing now in what I think is a, is a period of demythologization as well, um, which in itself I think is a good thing, but we have to be very, very careful uh, uh, of, the, of the temptation to try and get out of the discomfort that it creates in us. Yeah, so you're talking about a group of people living and studying and working together, you know, uh, with with this with differences between the differences of background and gender and, and origin and, and outlook. Um, uh, I think that that's you know at Deep Springs, um, which is one of our points of contact, talks about you know academics, labor, and and self governance, right? So, living in community, living intentionally, right? It re requires the cultivation of certain certain skills and habits and, and, and ways of being. Um, and I'm wondering if you, if you have any ideas about your, about the Great Lakes Institute, like what, what, um, what do you see you'd like to cultivate in order to, to have that work uh, in, in, in a group, the type of community you're, you're thinking about? Um, I'll, I'll try and speak briefly and, and also uh, ask Julia to give her thoughts on this. Um, but I guess for myself, uh, I would I would try as hard as possible to resist the tendency of any institution to become crystallized around certain kinds of uh, you know discourses or or schools of thought. Um, I think that every every institution you know you can't really help it like to a hundred percent degree, but we need to be always vigilant 
that were that were not becoming a click and not producing an inside outside dynamic um and for that i i you know if we were to to, to have any kind of um you know uh school of thought associated with it i would want it to be leaning towards the skeptical um you know having a certain kind of built-in uh resistance to accepting anything too quickly of of becoming too zealous about any particular position um of constantly asking ourselves well you know what what are the consequences of this kind of thought and and how would somebody in different in a different position um understand this and react to this and and feel about um about a given um idea or book or or what have you um so not to be afraid of of different kinds of thoughts but to have a kind of built-in resistance and and i think that part of that is precisely can be embodied in in the fact of like actually different people right people who do critique one another and fostering that that uh that culture uh of conversation of, of being willing to have different stances but but within the framework uh i i think of a certain kind of you know montagnian um like okay mm. let's let's think about that let's not <laughs> jump in too quickly a certain patience yeah <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna in the spirit of uh, <laughs> Simone Weil, who uh, who loves the the sort of tension between opposites and contradictions. I'm gonna actually uh, suggest some like for me for me what's very important is is a, a spirit of generosity like uh, of of gener the word generosity I think to be generous. What does it mean? This is like a problem in my life. What does it mean to be generous? What does it mean to be generous in our scholarship to like I, I I'm I'm and I don't know the answers to this, like, but a but a position of generosity for me when I am engaging with other scholars, with other individuals, which is not to say to not be skeptical or not be critical, but it's it's something that it's something I think about a lot. I think also in a more to answer your question in maybe a more practical manner. I think looking at the the terminology and the languages we use and understanding the the val both the value and the and and the and the problem with um, references and uh, sort of having having our own academic languages that we're referring to and who in the room knows what we're referring to do we even know what the words mean or are we just using them because we've been trained in certain dialogues. Um, so on a practical level, that that is an important aspect for me. But yes, con contra to to Philip and the skeptical approach, I would I would say <laughs> generosity of spirit is um is something that I would hope to move forward with. But I think though I think though even the very fact that the two of us have this difference here in this moment that that ultimately is so important, right? That they are that they are opposing opposing even motives within the school itself, like to keep it flexible and to keep it malleable and to um, be in a spirit of friendship and kindness and, and joy and that we are perhaps unified only in one way. And that is like a love for what we're doing 
Um, but otherwise to sort of be so willing to to bend and and listen, uh, truly listen, I think. So just just to be just to Perfect. be a little <laughs> I don't see these things as contradictory. I I don't I yeah, you're right, you're right. That's that's a that's a bold statement on my part. And you know what? We'll talk about it later. We'll think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, I, I think you know, uh, you know one of the things that's really interesting about your project are some of your, you know, the the, the names of the, the thinkers and influencers that show up. So we've talked about Simone Vey. I just wanted to mention if people are wondering that name, they maybe haven't heard it before. It's it's a it's a French pronunciation of a German looking name. So it's W E I L Simone Vey. Very mm-hmm. interesting uh, thinker. Um, We've heard a little bit of Hannah Arendt, um, and also you, you, you've talked about Ivan Illich, uh, who I know is an important thinker for you, Philip, um, and especially this this word conviviality, which um, you, you mentioned in connection with the bicycle. And um, <laughs> I think in some ways, like we're talking about being convivial, um, and I'm wondering if you could expand, just uh, if you'd be open to just a little opening of that term, and 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 what and 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 what um, the thinking of, of Ivan Illich might bring to this project. Sure. Um, Yvonne Illich ran a school in, well, I guess not really a school, a center um, in Mexico for several years from the uh, mid 60s to mid 70s. Um, And it was going really well and and lots of uh, prominent thinkers from North America and South America and and some f- from Europe as well uh, were heading to Mexico just to take seminars there. And one person asked him, um, you know, what's, y- this is going so well, like we'd like to uh, sort of replicate this model um, in other places. Like, do you think you could give us some guidelines for, for how you're doing it? And, um, and he was like, all we're, if you just go out with friends to the bar and drink some beers and talk about books, then you're doing what we're doing. (laughs) Um, There's no model. Right. So I I think that, uh, you know, Illich emphasized friendship in a lot of his writings. Um, And I think that perhaps that's one way to look at, uh, at, at how conviviality enters into an institution is that you're you're working with friends uh, first and foremost. Um, aside from that, there's a lot of uh, interesting political, um, you know, qualities of, of convivial life, for instance, um, trying to avoid technologies and practices uh, that every time they're used uh, tend to suck something away from uh from the place where they're used um so every time you use a debit card or a credit card for instance the bank is taking some of that money that that's being exchanged um so you use cash that's a more convivial way to do it um for example mm-hmm. um yeah and 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 you know we, I think these days can't get away from some of the digital technologies we're using, but uh, to, to the extent possible, um, I think that the Great Lakes Institute will emphasize uh, in-person and on the ground uh, interactions 
and and that is precisely for the sake of this conviviality um, um yeah just think yeah. about the, the word convivial right just it's kind of obvious it's right there in the word it's about living together right it's, right it's uh convivo and um and it, it's a simple idea except for people are so desperate for it right people feel you know separated from each other and I, certainly the students who end up coming to Thoreau College are you know sometimes they're coming out of high school sometimes they're coming out of another you know, an academic institution. Sometimes they have been out of school for a while and have been really feeling isolated in this kind of digital kind of landscape. And, um, you know, fundamentally, you know, whatever we're doing, talking about books, working in the garden, you know, going camping, like living together is what we're doing above all. And, uh, and thinking about, you know, technologies, forms, kind of habits, you know, qualities of communication that allow that to happen is, I would say, really core to what we're trying to do here and and and, and figure out experimentally together. Right. And, you know, I think perhaps one of the parts of that word that is is ignored is, is the living part. Um, there, it, it can seem like you're doing enough if you, you know, go to events and, uh, or, or you know, chat with people online or something. But if if you're if the actual building blocks of life itself are not shared and do not belong to a collective project, if you're you know receiving all your food delivered to your home and you're working from home and uh, you know every part of the all of the basics of your life are undertaken alone, then that together that happens as if it's a superfluous thing um i think really lacks precisely that that convivial quality which is what's making people lonely um mm -hmm. and loneliness is a terrible thing amen yeah Amen. Um, yes. Yeah, also reminded what Julia was saying about this kind of schizophrenia, doing my thinking over here and doing my working over here. Right. I think that's 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 kind of kept and characteristic of of the, of the modern world in a way that's. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, Ralph Waldo Emerson has an image of um, of the you know the human being in the modern time being kind of split up into various monstrosities. Right. There's a yeah. hand over here, a head over here, and they're you know they're not a whole person anywhere. Yeah, I call myself when I'm in my school mode, I'm a brain on a stick, right? And when I'm in my workspace, I am all body, you know, and I have like a thousand hands because I'm moving and grabbing and touching and, and and constantly, you know, the only, you know, not the only value, but my value in the workspace is is my body, how quickly it can move, how quickly I can bring you physically the thing that you need. And my value in the academic space is not that. Um, and, and to find a way to live both those lives together, at least so, you know, speaking of conviviality between people, like between oneself and self, like to be, to have those parts of myself be friendly um, and to know how to speak to each other is, uh, is something that I dream, I dream about. I hope one day that we can do that kind of thing. So. Hey, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Great. That's beautiful. Um, so yeah, uh, Philip, I'd love to make a, a little pivot now to talk really specifically about this winter program. Um, just to to frame this again, the the, the dates are uh, you know fifteenth uh, of January through the twenty third of February two thousand twenty four. Um, and uh, it's going to be happening here in person in in the flesh here in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Um, 
And, uh, you know, yeah, you go from there. Can you describe the, the core idea here of, and some of the texts you, you're, you're going to be exploring and ideas are gonna, that we're going to be working on? Definitely. Um, I'm super excited about this program. I think it's going to be really awesome, not least because of all the amazing uh, people from Thoreau who are going to be contributing to it. I mean, if you're thinking of applying to this, I think it's incredible value. You're getting not only uh, the academic program, um, which will involve thinking through some some really cool texts and having some great conversations, but you're also getting, uh, you know, some amazing craft workshops and this five-day expedition, uh, as, as well as just the experience of living uh, together at Thoreau. Um, as far as the organic metaphor and politics, this is a topic um, that I've become really interested in the past couple of years. Um, and I found that there are many ways of uh, thinking it through. Right. Um, but the long and short of it is that the natural, or if you will, living world um, is at the core, I think, of so much of our thinking um, about our human life. Right. And what I began to observe a couple of years ago uh, is that whenever the term natural was used in a political context, it tended actually not to refer to what's natural at all, but to what's unnatural. And so this, this word nature um, and organism always carries a kind of shadow. Um, and I think that in order to properly understand how we stand in relation to the natural world now, which is of incredible importance, we need to we need to face that shadow um, and look at what it is that uh, we think we are. Um, and to do so, we're gonna we're gonna be looking at many many different texts. Um, and I want to emphasize that when I use the word text, uh, I'm not just referring to books. Part of this uh, initiative is going to be trying to expand the concept of, of text itself um, because the capacity for uh, expression has not been limited to uh, the written word in human cultures. And so in order to really appreciate the many different contributions of different human cultures, um, we're going to need to expand this concept and look at, uh, you know, text meaning something made, and we're going to look at all kinds of things made. We're going to look at physical objects, uh, as well as written text, as well as videos and sound. Um, so I think it'll be really fun. Um, but some of the topics we're going to be looking at are the metaphor of, uh, of a society as a kind of super organism, what are the implications of that? Um, the most obvious one being that the organism is going to die because all organisms die. Um, we're going to be looking at the idea of uh, the state of nature, which has informed uh, 
you know, significantly quite a bit of European thought since the 17th century. Um, and what the contrast, what the, what rather, what the, um, what are the consequences of the ways that we imagine a pre-political life for how we imagine normatively what a political life should look like? Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, some of the renewal uh, of animist thought in contemporary times um, and what it means to, for instance, um, try and revise the legal concept of the person to include natural objects. Uh, is this animism or is it not? Um, so policy documents are, are of interest here. Um, and we're also, I think I'll end with this one. We're gonna be looking at the current of uh, natural law or laws of nature. Are they the same? Are they different? And how has the idea of um, law tended to flip back and forth between uh, the realm of the natural and the realm of the political? Uh, and in particular, how has it been used to control human bodies in particular ways? Uh, to assume that the ways we're using our bodies are not natural and therefore need to be controlled by human contrivances. Uh, it's a very fascinating topic, and uh, I'm really looking forward to going through it with uh, with the participants of the winter program. Um, I know everybody who joins will have some amazing contributions, and uh, I think we'll have the chance to learn a lot from each other. So, yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. I think, you know, this it's, it'll be an extraordinary opportunity uh, for people to pick it up um, and really look forward to, to hearing from you. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's a, we've been doing it for about an hour here. So thank you so much, Julia and Philip, for your for your boldness in, in going out <laughs> and and, uh, and, you know, exploring this idea such to, to, to manifest it in the world and also for taking some time to, to share it with us here today. Thank you. Oh, thank Thanks, you. Jacob. This has been a lovely, a lovely way to spend part of the afternoon. So thank you. <laughs>